Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. In the words that we saw from uh, Isaiah at the beginning of our service that we read back and forth, we saw how Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, was able to peer some 700 years or so into the future, seven centuries, and essentially see um, the drama of salvation unfold in, in metaphors, visions before his eyes, and, and part of that metaphor that he describes this suffering servant, this savior, this messiah, as we said, he was a, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shears is silent. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we started walking through Jesus' uh, passion life, and we saw that these three trials that Jesus had, how he barely said a word. The only defense he gave was just the truth. Here's who I am. Here's what I said. And he never argued never objected to the fact that there was not one single crime that he was really guilty of, and yet here he goes being condemned as a criminal. And even when he was uh, in front of the soldiers who got their kicks and giggles out of just punishing people, mocking him, putting a purple robe on him, shoving a, a crown of thorns, just digging right into his scalp, flogging him, we have no record of him saying anything. All the way up to the cross. And when he's on the cross, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, we call them, record seven words, seven sets of phrases that we hear come from our Savior's mouth. And, and the first words that he said are just so, um, they're, they're surprising. They're shocking. They're surreal. What do you want to say? They're confusing. Father, forgive them. Not quite what you would expect. Like, forgive them, really? The, the, you're talking about the chief priests who have just waited and planned and plotted and now are just going to revel in every single moment that they see as the hours tick by until Jesus is dead, and you forgive them? Like these Roman ogres and brutes who, who just 
nailed you, pounded railroad spikes into your limbs and hoisted you up between heaven and earth. Forgive them. Forgive, forgive the Roman leaders who were spineless and cowardly and, and forewent justice and just allowed, placated to the masses and said, sure, mob mentality, you win. Forgive them? Really? Because as your Savior is dying on the cross, you would not want him to say anything else. Because it's not just those people who were responsible for Jesus on the cross. It's you too. And me. It was our sins that put him there. Our sins were the entire reason why Jesus had to go to the cross. The Son of God, he entered into humanity. And he came to bring grace and forgiveness to a clueless world, to a world who had no idea what they were doing, to a world that was so lost in themselves and sin. Father, forgive them. It's so good. These words really are a definition of what Jesus Christ was all about, what Christianity is all about, this undeserved love, this grace that he just freely pours out. He came to love a whole world, and he gives up his life for them and for you. There was a written notice above Jesus which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever had someone walk away from you, cut ties with you in your life because of your performance? Um, something you did, something you said, maybe an epic fail, a thing that you wish you could, uh, if you could go back in time, you would do it again, you would do it differently, you would say something differently, but you can't take it back. Uh, maybe you were at work and you messed up boss fires you. They let you go. You have an interview and you just royally mess up the interview and they move on. They hire a different candidate who maybe wasn't even as qualified as you. You try out for the team and it goes terrible. Bad tryout, whatever it was, bad day, and you don't make the cut. Boyfriend, girlfriend, you have an argument. You have a spat be a little rough patch and, and then the other person says uh, I'm going to move on we're done or maybe you just have a friendship and you say something dumb you, you do something you regret and that person that's it they cut ties with you delete your contact information from their cell phone block you whatever it is they, they move on from you we're used to seeing this all the time aren't we 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 see it all the time, and uh, 
social media feeds, Twitter, things like that, where someone says something and we call it the cancel culture, right? Someone said something, so therefore we disagree with it, we define that person by that, dehumanize them and just cancel them and we're done with it and we move on. And if that's how we interact with other people on a regular daily basis, then how could the perfect son of God, or excuse me, the perfect God himself, how could he actually deal with us after what I've done after that sin that maybe only you and God know about and and yet you believe that he's going to love you you believe that he's going to welcome you and accept you like this whole week we're celebrating Jesus life Jesus death Jesus resurrection is that really for me now, if you've ever had that thought, if you're going through that thought, or if you know someone who is despairing of those thoughts, turn them not just to the cross, but the man next to Jesus on the cross. Whether it was on his left or right, but this thief, this, this murderer, this person who is being crucified with Jesus, who has led a life as far away from God as you can imagine, up to this point, and in his last hours, he's not getting down from this cross without his life being taken from him. In these most agonizing moments, he, he realizes he's going to meet his maker, and he sees this man. Maybe the rumors are true. Maybe everything about this man in the middle of us is different. And he pleads for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and if Jesus were one of us, maybe you'd expect him to say, excuse me? Like, you're guilty, you deserve to be up here, and you want me to just suddenly pardon you and forgive you? Excuse me, your life, your entire lifetime, you have nothing to offer me, and, and you just want suddenly a free pass. And instead, Jesus just simply says, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had nothing in his hands, nothing to show for his life to offer Jesus, and just in a moment of a moment of repentance and faith, he asks for God's mercy, and that's what he gets. Because that's what it's about. Not anything we do, but but just again, you just see this grace coming from Jesus, even up to his dying breath, just still saving people, still showing people the world what he's all about. If there's a sin, if there's a something on your heart, some baggage, a ball and chain, a thing that you're just carrying around that's weighing you down, look at this guy. Like, an entire lifetime of sins, Jesus pardons in an instant and gives him an eternity with God. Do you get it? There is nothing you could do that is going to keep Jesus from wanting to be with you Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. 
how good are you at being compassionate to someone when you are going through uh, an inconvenience, some sort of discomfort, some bout of pain or suffering? Um, how good are you at, at showing compassion to someone when you're so filled up with uh, this mess in your own life? Just imagine how many service opportunities, how many uh, chances we've had to love one another that we have missed, that we have ignored, or that we've refused because we've been so self-focused on our situation, on our hurts and our pain, and we've forgotten to love one another. And yet right here, <laughs> this is what makes these words so incredibly remarkable. Jesus uh, dying a death you and I can't even try to understand and imagine and yet, right here, he's not so concerned with the nails, with the thorns, with the flogging, with the suffocation, with the dehydration. But instead, he sees Mary. He sees his mom. And he's so concerned about her. And who's going to take care of her? What's going to happen to her? How's she going to be treated? And he sees his only disciple who came back to watch the crucifixion, John. And he says to John, John, Mom, John's going to take care of you now. John, take care of Mom. It's incredible that it shows you the whole reason why Jesus is on the cross in the first place. Because he's taking care of the needs of others. Like the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place, not himself-focused, but you-focused, other-focused to love a world lost in sin. And, and what does he do? He takes care of the greatest spiritual need that we all have, the thing that keeps us from a relationship with God, your sin, the separation. That's why he's on the cross. And the words to, to Mary, the words to John, it shows the whole love, the nature of why he's really there, what he's thinking about, thinking of you providing relief for your and my greatest need. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now I'll leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. I did a service like this at my last church, and um, a woman came up to me um, after the service sometime later and uh, said, you know, you said that Jesus suffered hell on the cross. I've never heard that before. Is that true? How is that possible? And uh, it's a great question. I know it sounds crazy when you think that this is uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and yet he's suffering hell. And sometimes I think it's unhelpful the way we, we talk about hell, we visualize hell, we've kind of cartoonized it a little bit, just imagine it as like this, you know, underground place where there's lots of flames and there's lots of torture devices and then there's Satan in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork and horns and 
what's the Bible say hell is? God essentially says what hell is is an absence from him, complete and total. An absence of his love, an absence of his mercy, an absence of his grace. And if the Bible is true that James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, and you're removed from the Father, then hell is no good thing. There is nothing. It is utter hopelessness and despair. Why would Jesus have to suffer that? Because that's what our sins deserve. God was clear in his word how none of us are perfect, how we all deserve death and condemnation, how we all deserve hell. And if this is what our sins deserve, then this is exactly what Jesus is suffering at this moment. God's full wrath, God's full justice. And in fact, this is the reason why Jesus has to say it the way he does. He can't say Abba, he can't say Father, but instead he simply says, my God. The only time that you'll find in Scripture where Jesus prays to God, but he doesn't call him Father. Why? Because he can't. He's been kicked out. The Father has literally turned his back on his son, right? Kicked him out of the house and said, don't you come back. I disown you. You're not my child. He removes himself from him. That's hell. And he cries out, why? But he knows why. Because this is what we deserve. This is why Jesus came, to suffer hell in this very moment, at this time on the cross, completely cut off from the Father, completely cut off from any good thing. He suffers hell for you. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. It's estimated that um, potentially Jesus has gone maybe 15 hours so far without a drink of water, without a drop of water. So if you think from the moment he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, to his betrayal, to the holding cells and the trials, to the flogging posts and all, everything in between. It's likely he did not get a single drop of water. And now on the cross, not only is he dying slowly of asphyxiation, but also after the beating his body is taken, he is dying of thirst. He is parched, and that is putting it lightly. And for some people, when they read this set of words, I am thirsty, For them, it's actually the most emotional because for them, it's the most empathetic of words. We can relate to him because we know what it's like to be thirsty. We know what it's like to have worked out or gone a hard day or in the heat of the day and we're just dying for a a drop of water. We know what that is like. And, And for people to see Jesus say this, it really shows his humanity, doesn't it? Yeah, he's true God. And on the cross, he is exchanging his 
perfect life, his perfect track record with God, giving it to you and me so we can have this relationship with God. But make no mistake, he's also a true man, right? And you see him thirsting, just like we know how you and I thirst. Make no mistake. True man, right here, shows you that this is your absolute, genuine, bona fide, authentic substitute suffering in your place. When he, Jesus, had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. done, over, the end, nothing more to do, nothing more that can be done, right, it is finished, what's finished, everything, the payment for your sin, the condemnation that would have otherwise killed you, Satan's finished, hell is finished, the grave is finished, death is finished, it is finished, these Three simple English words are, you cannot misunderstand them. It's over. The war for your soul is won with a victory shout. Tetelestai. It is finished. So the next time Satan comes at you, and he tempts you and says, there's no way God could love you. There's no way that God would ever want to have anything to do with you after what you've done, after you look at yourself in the mirror, after you think about all the stuff that you, you remember these words. And you remind him of those words. It's over. It is finished. Jesus won. You lost. And not only that, Jesus crushed your head, Satan. You get that? You're not the king of hell. You're its most notorious prisoner. You have no power over me. Because Jesus won. And that means you, too, share in that victory. Now it was about the sixth hour. Darkness had come over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining curtain of the temple was tore into. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Ever done a trust fall before? It was a work exercise, or maybe it's just something you've done. You, I, I think you know the concept, right? You, you blindly fall backwards into what's supposed to be a, a group of friends behind you, and uh, it's going to determine whether or not you trust those friends, right? Will you fall and just leave your body stiff and straight like a plank of wood and just go right into their arms, or will you cave? Will you buckle? Uh, there's a shot of adrenaline that goes through you. Uh, my two-year-old son... We have a split-level house, and every morning when he wakes up, he stands at the top of those stairs and waits for me to get there and just starts falling, and, and he knows his dad is going to catch him. Kind of like Jesus here. 
everything's done. The work for your salvation, the work for humanity's rescue from sin, to be able to have a relationship with God, it is paid, it is finished, it is done in full. The temple curtain is torn into everything that the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus, it's all done. New covenant now. One of grace, one of unconditional love. It's finished. And so Jesus, even though he's been tempted this entire time and taunted from so many people, come on down, come on down. You heard it in another criminal. Save yourself and us. Come on, if you're the son of God, you can do it. And yet, for our benefit and trusting in God's plan, he stayed up on the cross and trusting in his father's plan of a resurrection, knowing that everything is done, he now is able to let go trusting that his father will raise him again. These words, these words of trust can be your words also. We're going to face death someday. There's no no avoiding it. And I can't think of too many better words to say or think of on your deathbed than these words. That you too can trust in your father's plans that just like he, he would make Jesus rise again on Easter, he's going to make you rise again too. So you can say, after everything is done, like your Savior did before you, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Later, after Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. When Pilate's permission, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 